stack place, le before is so chouette Les avis pédantes et super une fête Je pense que c'est effectively cool Je pense que c'est effectively wild Effectivement sauvage Effectivement sauvage Hello and welcome to episode 2047 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm May Rowley of Fangraphs and Ben is still in, you know, the cold north. I don't know what the temperatures are like in Sweden this time of year, but he is not here to pod. And so I am joined today by Fangraphs own Ben's former Ringer MLB show co-host, Michael Bauman. Bauman, how are you? I'm the next best thing. You just called me Ben before I did. we started. It's okay. I just uh, finished recording an episode of the Ringer F1 show with the other Meg who who used to edit uh, me, Meg wow. Schuster. So I'm not going to get your name wrong. Well, for Tuesday's episode, Ben Clemens joined me in place of Ben Lindbergh is other Ben this week. You know, we have all these Bens floating around. And on this pod, he tends to be, you know, like prime Ben. But while he's gone, he is other Ben, and Ben Clemens joined me. And so I think I was just on a Ben roll. And no, that's why. you were on a Ben Durr. Ah, ha, Gazinga. We're doing puns, and mm-hmm. we're going to talk about college uh-huh. baseball in open defiance of my co host wishes. Although Ben, other Ben leans into puns every now and again, I guess I should say. We're going to talk about a couple of things today. We're going to talk about the specter of sports conference realignment. And perhaps some some favorite uh, remember some guys and also uh, our impressions of guys being bigger and stronger than we think they'll be when we see them in person. But before we do that, we have to do the best thing that radio can offer, analyze a picture and give our thoughts on it. And I am here to say that, you know, Dodgers team photo day seems like it's a really fun time. Everybody seems very happy in these photos. And you discovered a great picture of your one true love and his maybe new one true love, Lance Lynn and Kike Hernandez. So, Ben, damn it. You did, did it again. again. Wow. <sighs> really great. I, I didn't have to ask Shane to change anything in Tuesday's episode, and I was tired from a wedding, and I get, <laughs> I get like, good sleep, and all of a sudden I'm calling people by the wrong name. Anyway, Bauman. I could just, have, I could just go by Ben for this podcast if it'll no, make it easier so- on you. No, I know your name. We we are friends. Are you sure? We talked about jambalaya before we started recording and cheese and me being flummoxed and confused by social media trends, even when I'm not away for a wedding and able to observe them. Anyway, do you want to sing a few bars about the, the love of your life, Lance Lynn? Yeah, this, this picture was tweeted out by Chad Moriyama from Dodgers Digest, uh, and it's Lance Lynn standing behind Kike Hernandez sort of embracing him in Mm -hmm. a way that I think Lance Lynn is on a riser, but he's so much bigger than (laughs) Kike that I am not 100% sure. And both of them have, like, the most adorable, contented smile uh, on their faces. It's very much in the, the realm of, like, it's almost parent and child. Yes. But there is, like, just something goo-goo-eyed about Kike's uh, yeah. uh, expression. I don't know. They're just – Lance Lynn is, is pretty chill. He's a he's a good hang. Uh, yeah. Kike, I, every time I 
I see Kike Hernandez now. I think back to earlier this season when he was still in the Red Sox and they were in Philly. And I was in the clubhouse talking to, I was, I think it was Connor Wong I was there to talk to. And Kike comes in dressed in like tight clothing that was in every non-matching color you could buy a super soaker in uh, in the 90s. (laughs) And I just watched him walk. And yeah, I think he still had like the sort of silver dyed hair at this point. And as I walked past, I was like, between the two of us, we have the average amount of self-confidence that you would find in two men. And uh, like, like walked him past. Like, this is where all my self-esteem went. He has, yeah, it. he, he just, siphoned it away. He is such a charismatic person. I, yeah. just I, I'm overcome with jealousy, and I'm really happy that that he and Lance Lynn are getting along. I feel like a lot of um, Lance Lynn photos, you know, set aside what he looks like on the mound, because every pitcher has like serious mound face most of the time except when they're looking completely ridiculous. He has often been sort of dour looking in his roster photos and it has been consistent, right? Like he is he has been dour looking when he is coming off a great year. He's been dour looking when he's coming off an okay year or when he's entering a season like this one where maybe he had a sense that the team he was signed to was not going to be especially great and so you know he's a serious he's a serious man but i have heard from you like you've talked to him several times in the course of your career something of a of an aficionado of of lance lynn and he seems like he's a good hang so it's kind eyes yeah i I won't say i know him well enough to know for sure that he's a good person but he has kind looking eyes yeah i do i do enjoy the part of this photo you know apart from lance lynn looking like he's just really happy and and Kike having a, a tenderness to him as he is as he is cradled ever so slightly in in Lancelin's arm and then you have JD Martinez looking toward the future presumably <laughs> yeah, like like Napoleon <laughs> yeah, he's surveying a battlefield or a weapons test or something so yeah those Dodgers it's I the, doubted them you know what it, it finally hit me because I've made the face that Lancelin's making before it's the face you make in your prom photo. When oh, your yeah. when your date is way better looking than you are, <laughs> you're like I crushed it. I'm doing great. Everything's coming up, Lance. But at the same time, like, oh no, I'm like, how did this happen? I'm completely <laughs> outside my element. I am confident that they are on risers. Like that's the way that these photos always go. But I I do like the idea of him being not only this much taller than than Hernandez, but like you know half a head taller than JD Martinez, who's not a small man. Like you know, half, yeah, Lance is he's huge. Yeah, he's a big guy. He's a he's a strapping dude. Well, that's not what we're gonna fill an hour of radio with. We could, but we're choosing not to. Yeah, we're exercising restraint, you know, on behalf of our listeners, because at some point Ben will go on vacation or a trip again and then we'll you know, we'll wanna return to this well. We don't wanna exhaust it all in, in one go. That would be that'd be a waste. But you have written recently for fangraphs.com about the impact that College football really realignment, division realignment, conference realignment is going to have on what are lovingly referred to as the non-revenue generating sports, which is basically everything that isn't football and men's basketball. In in most conferences, there are obviously um, some sports uh, that do well for their respective schools, but that's where like the big TV money is. 
And there has been a tremendous amount of change in a very short period of time in that landscape. So maybe the place that we can start is, can you give the Reader's Digest version of the recent conference realignment? And then maybe we can talk about how it is different or the same from other realignments that we've seen in the past and then its potential impact on college baseball. So what what's the current state of affairs? If we're really doing Reader's Digest, I'm going to ask all our listeners to sit on the toilet while I'm... <laughs> giving this little talk. The short version is uh, the Big Ten and the SEC are both taking big chunks out of other conferences. So the school that I referred to as USC in the the written version of this, and I'm going to call Southern Cal now because I'm petty, uh, and UCLA are joining the Big Ten. And it had already been announced that Texas and Oklahoma were joining uh, the SEC from the Big 12. And this is sort of a – the latter is sort of a continuation of what the SEC has been doing. It's sort of like a gradual expansion since the 90s. You know, they added Arkansas and South Carolina and then Texas A&M and Missouri, and everything has sort of been geographically contiguous. They're just sort of bleeding out and getting bigger and bigger schools from from neighboring states, from that core area, the sort of Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee uh, area. What the Big Ten is doing is reaching all the way across the country to a place that it had no historic footprint. That started when they brought in uh, Rutgers and Maryland about 10 years ago right. uh, to get the Big Ten, basically just to get the Big Ten network on TV in New York and, and Washington uh, yeah. and increase revenue for the schools and you know the Midwestern markets. When the, the early to mid-2010s realignment happened, it sort of killed off the old Big East, and that's split into a couple different conferences and different sports. And what the, the SEC's poaching Texas and, and Oklahoma was doing was it was taking the tentpole school out of the Big 12, which is you know usually like Texas, Great Plains uh, region. And the Big Ten is doing took the legs out of the Pac-12 by taking away the Los Angeles schools. And right. the Big 12 had already been planning to bring in a bunch of schools, BYU, Cincinnati, Houston. They had already been on the docket to join and sort of backfill. And some of these schools had formerly been major conference schools and and got lost in a previous alignment in the 90s. Now they're bringing them back into major conferences. And what looks like it's going to happen to the Pac-12 without the LA schools is it's just going to dissolve. So Washington and Oregon are joining the Big Ten. Cal and Stanford are looking for a way out. And if that happens, there will only be – um, Oregon State and Washington State, which are the the leftovers, basically, because Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado, which is not relevant to baseball because Colorado doesn't have a baseball team, uh, right. they're joining the Big Twelve. So back in around the turn of the century to the early early two thousands, there were six major conferences. Now we're seeing a consolidation down to four, with two very much richer and more powerful than the others. And so what this is leading to is there's basically ongoing. Uh, Florida State and Clemson have been playing footsie with the SEC. They're right. dissatisfied because they're the two big football powerhouses in the ACC, and everybody else is sort of being left behind. They're like, you know, we're really more culturally like this this conference that could theoretically pay us more money and would we would fit it within that geographic footprint. So what I think the smart money is on, this is the orthodoxy, is that maybe not now, but in the next – 10 to 15 years, the SEC and the Big Ten are going to eat off the cream of the crop from the ACC and the Big 12, and we're going to have a de facto college football super league. And because 
all the money is in football, all the other, like you said, non-revenue sports are getting dragged in with it. You know, never mind that for a lot of SEC schools, baseball is a, is a revenue sport. For a few SEC schools, women's basketball is a revenue sport as well. And so these are like huge cultural sporting institutions that are sort of being dragged along to places that aren't really fit for them to go. This is less of a problem with the SEC, but in the Big Ten, now they've got schools of varying sizes spread from sea to shining sea and varying commitments to baseball. And the quote-unquote baseball powerhouses that they're bringing in might not actually do what what's expected of them in the Big Ten. So I covered, you know, I say this every time I come on, I used to cover <laughs> Big Ten Midwestern baseball for D1 baseball in the first year, like the first couple years of the Maryland Rutgers Nebraska expansion. And when they brought in Nebraska, they had just been to the College World Series and everybody expected them to cakewalk the the Big Ten, and that just didn't happen. And what happened is schools like Iowa and Indiana and Illinois and Michigan, too, really invested in the in the product and really grew their baseball program. So now there's strength at the top of the Midwest for, for college baseball in a way there hasn't been since the 80s. So I think, like UCLA, I think is a, a step above anybody that the Big Ten has, but you know, Southern Cal is the most decorated program in college baseball history, and it's been a non-entity for the entire 21st century. Like, you know, this is where like Tom Seaver and and Randy Johnson and Mark McGuire went to school. They won 12 national championships and they've been, I don't know if they've been like a top 10 most successful college baseball team in California in the past 20 years. So like, so I'm interested to see what happens to them when they run up against in Indiana, Maryland, you know, depending on how, you know, Ohio State's been good on and off. Like, there are some serious players in the Big Ten. It's a legitimate power baseball conference now. So there's this huge uncertainty. The SEC is the less interesting part of this because everybody sort of fits. Like, Texas and Oklahoma, they're not that different culturally, geographically from, like, LSU or Arkansas, you know, a school like that. And But with the Big Ten, you've got all these parts that fit together if your only goal is to make a national revenue generating football conference but you get down the pecking order to baseball and you've got these pieces that just could not be more different and so i'm very interested to see how they all fit together and what happens there i think it's gonna it's gonna have a big impact on college sports generally where we might see the dissolution of either big time football breaking away from the ncaa entirely or the divorce of football from the conference structure that governs everything else. Right, because let's say you play football at UCLA, you play football at USC, whatever. Is it going to be somewhat more taxing for you to now have to travel to Michigan, to Wisconsin? Sure, but you're doing it once a week. You're on, you're generally flying charter. A lot of those schools are flying charter, right? And your season is compressed into many fewer games, not all of which are going to be played so far afield. But if you're a baseball player or softball player or, you know, any of these other sports where you have series to play rather than a single game, you do have midweek stuff that you're trying to balance with going to class. Like there's the architecture piece of this that is how do we make these things fit together both culturally and geographically? But then there's the reality that these kids are facing now, which is they're going to be traveling significantly more than they were before. And as you noted when you wrote about this for us, like not every guy who plays Division One college football is going to the NFL, but 
I would imagine that a much higher percentage of them go to the NFL than college baseball players go on to be drafted and go to Major League Baseball. Like the proportions are just really different. And the sort of value proposition of going to school on one of those scholarships is really different because the scholarship amounts are much smaller. So it's a weird thing to make fit. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that almost no college baseball players are on full athletic scholarships. These teams have 11.7 scholarships at the Division I level to disperse among up to uh, 32 players. And a lot of major schools don't even use all 11.7. And, you know, there's some of them that get get around this with, like, academic or need-based aid. Vanderbilt's been very creative. That's, that's you know, the, the school that always gets um, gets brought up. But... Yeah, they're playing five times a week, and the midweek games at, are usually home games for for major schools. Or it's a if you do go on the road, like I, know, I covered a, a midweek Louisville Ohio State game. Like you know, it's a couple hours on the bus. That's not a big deal. You're there and back. You know, it's a pretty easy trip. But particularly in the Midwest, where the Big Ten is now making you know by adding UCLA, they're making a big investment in baseball just intrinsically by adding a school like that. All these schools are on the road for the first six weeks of the season because it's too cold. It's too cold to play up there. So you're already interfering with with a more rigorous academic schedule because a lot of the good baseball schools are better schools than the good football schools. And the infrastructure around it is less because the the football teams, like you said, a lot of them are getting chartered flights, they're getting better travel arrangements, they have more academic support. A lot of times you have coaches that dictate what these kids can study, and that's less true in baseball, and there's less support for it. And, you know, the the coach to, to athlete ratio is a lot it's a lot higher in baseball than it is in football. So it's just it's gonna be bad for the athletes. Right. I, I just don't see this as being tenable in the long term. I think something is gonna have to break. I liked your idea here of just decoupling football from the rest of the, you know, the rest of the sort of conference infrastructure. And there's precedent for this, right? Like there are schools that can, that have certain sports of theirs compete in a conference and, you know, then Notre Dame plays football as an independent or whatever, you know, so it's not like there's no precedent for doing that. There isn't really precedent for doing it quite at this scale. And I wonder, like, if we go down that road where football is sort of its own thing, you know, operating above all of these other sports, do you think that that would be enough to sort of save some of these programs from potentially saying it's just not worth it for us to have to spend, you know, the money to send UCLA to Michigan (laughs) however many times a year? Like, is that going to be enough to, to keep some of these programs afloat? I think so, because you can break these out into, you know, if you make specialist baseball conferences, there are special, you know, I mentioned specialist hockey conferences, but I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was in school writing for the school paper, uh, South Carolina and Kentucky played men's soccer in Conference USA because the SEC didn't sponsor men's soccer. And so, but, you know, and they were in there with a mix of other uh, schools that were at the time Conference USA schools. And so something like that just seems like too obvious a solution not to happen once everybody just wakes up and gives up the pretense. And I think giving up the pretense with, you know, the NIL money, with all the lawsuits about, you know, control and the transfer portal and the potential legislation and the pretense is it feels like it's on its last legs. And once that drops, you can say, okay, football is its own thing. Let's let the other sports do what's best for these teams, these athletes, and come up with a different solution. 
Right. And so in that in that framework, you have UCLA and USC competing with the other good sort of mid-major programs in California. I mean, there's so, there's so much college baseball in California. It's not good right now, but there is a lot of Traditionally, it, you know? there's a lot of good college baseball in California. Right. That has not been the case lately. Um, those programs have fallen on hard times or have fallen behind analytically or both things, you know. So it hasn't been quite the power that it has been in prior years, but it does seem like if I'm a college baseball player going to UCLA, I'd much rather drive to Cal State Fullerton than I would get on a charter flight to go to Michigan to play in the cold in May or whatever the hell. It is funny. Like we see we end up seeing all of those teams down in the valley for the first couple of weeks. Like that's when you get looks at at Michigan and Indiana and Arkansas and whatnot, because they all come through here because it's so freaking cold where they live. Yeah, I mentioned the coldest college baseball game I've ever went went to in the in the article, but there was another one. One of the first games I went to my first year was to see Ian Happ, and it turns out Ryan Noda too at Cincinnati, their first home series. And every school out in the Midwest has a turf field because that allows you to squeegee the snow off it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like that's a major consideration at at schools in in Ohio and the Great Lakes. But what you mentioned about schools like not bothering to sponsor baseball, I mentioned Colorado. Syracuse doesn't have a, a baseball team. Wisconsin doesn't have a baseball team. Iowa State canceled its baseball team after the 2001 season. Big schools will let this sport drop if it becomes inconvenient. And there are weather considerations for all of those schools. But, like, you know, Northwestern's baseball team is in the tank and they just fire their coach. And, like, how long are they going to keep that pretense up if they just keep getting their teeth kicked in it's just not something that i would want to or you know you look at the turmoil that's in west virginia right now which is a that's a fairly successful baseball program and uh they're you know the university has basically been run like they're they're canceling language classes you know is is base is a is the the 10th best team in in the big 12 going to be worth it if you're you know dealing with title nine you know scholarship equivalency stuff like that so it's it's going to be very easy for a lot of these schools to give up on baseball altogether. And I would like that not to happen because even at, at schools where that aren't like traditional powers, there's still a lot of cultural value to having a baseball team. Well, and you know, I, I worry about the existing teams on, you know, affiliated with universities that are sort of being left without a, a chair now that the music stopped, like what's going to happen to Oregon state recruiting yeah. when they don't, know where their football team's going to play like that isn't exactly you know it hasn't been the cream of the Pac-12 crop not that most of the football in the Pac-12 has been very good of late but but Oregon State's been bad at football even by those standards yes even by those standards they've been bad and so what's gonna happen there you know what is gonna happen to Washington State's program when you know their I think financial situation isn't as dire as say West Virginia's, but my understanding is that like a lot of the rights deal stuff kind of put them in a bad mm -hmm. spot when it comes to their football team, let alone what are they gonna do with baseball. And so you do worry about some of these schools, you know, Oregon State's program is better than Washington State's, obviously, but like that have a a rich baseball tradition that have been very good, you know, that have produced Adley Rutschmans and yet are kind of in this weird in-between where if you're, you know, a good high school player and you're not going to the draft straight from high school, like what, what do you do when you're approached by Oregon State? Like I would, I would be nervous about going there, even though they're not decoupled from the Pac-12 just yet. Like it's not like that stuff starts this year, but it seems 
seems like it's going to be a problem for those programs, even the ones that do have a, a good baseball tradition to kind of hold on until the dust settles. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I do. I will say, can I, can I find something funny? Yes. There's a lot about this that is funny. So Deeply funny. And one of those things is that Stanford, you know, a school in the middle of Silicon Valley, full of innovation and rabid MBAs did not manage to extricate themselves <laughs> successfully from the Pac-12. That's a little funny. It really tells you all you need to know about yeah. that type of leadership. But yeah, yeah. The, the two things about the, the point you just made is one of them is something that was in the Teddy Cahill Baseball America article that I, I linked in, in my story. And he was talking about the kids out West, you know, the kid from Oregon is not going to commit to to Oregon State, they're going to go east. You know, a lot of the the good coaches and a lot of the good players are going out of state now. You know, we sort of view baseball as becoming a national sport at the college level. The other thing is, you know, the Oregon State example is nobody wants that football team. Like, that's basically a mid-major football team. But if you're picking the baseball programs out of the Pac-12, the ones that you want to bring in to attract good players and, and quality competition and a lot of money, that's the first that's the first call I'd make. If I was trying to pick teams out of baseball teams out of the Pac-12, and so that just it highlights the awkwardness, and in a level that like I don't think really exists in the SEC outside of Vanderbilt, or it doesn't exist in the ACC really, where everybody tries it at baseball and football as you know as best they can. A school like Oregon State doesn't really exist in those conferences. I do wonder what it's going to do. You know, and we probably won't have an answer to this for a while, but, you know, we have just seen sort of a, a multi-year stretch where there were schools that have solidified themselves as being, like, really good player dev programs, basically. Most of those schools are in the SEC, so the realignment isn't going to impact them um, necessarily. This is part of why, you know, college baseball in the West has sort of fallen on hard times is that they are very well behind those programs in a number of ways, not the least of which is the player dev part of it. But you do kind of wonder, like, what this might do to the trajectory of any growth or improvement on that score, because it takes money, you know, it takes resources to build a pitching lab and to be willing to spend the money to hire coaches away from either good college baseball programs or to, you know, try to be bold and pull someone out of a major league clubhouse like the, you know, like LSU did. So it it seems like that's just another way where the division between the SEC and I guess the ACC and the rest of college baseball is going to continue to widen because, you know, if you're barely hanging on as a program, you're not going to spend however many millions of dollars to, like, build a state-of-the-art pitching facility. Like, you're just not going to do that. So I, I wonder what this will do. It seems like it'll just continue to solidify the SEC as the only part of college baseball that, like, really moves the needle but yeah but if more of that football money you think about you know the four schools that are leaving the pac-12 for the the big 10 if they end up bringing more money from football and that makes its way into baseball i you know i could see that absolutely happening at, at those schools or at penn state which has been nowhere they just made a huge like getting mike gambito from from boston college is is big for that program. And so all this is sort of tied up in like head coach cult of personality. So you sort of have to take these one at a time, but I could see Washington or Oregon trying to become that, you know, become on the West coast, what Florida and Vanderbilt have been in the sec. Yeah. I mean, you have your own weather considerations up in that part of the country, but they, it's not snow. No. You can come, they can come play down here the way that 
They already do, right? I'll say, if, if you could do what Wake Forest has done at Wake, right. you could do it at anywhere else in the in these big, yeah. you know, big four conferences. Yeah. Well, I guess we're gonna we're gonna have to see how it all shakes out. But it is, I get that the I get that the money is coming from football, but it is too bad that it seems to be you know the tail wagging the dog when it comes to all of these other sports. And like, you know, we haven't even talked about the the sort of further down ballot sports in terms of the ones that get big attention and what it's going to mean for all of those athletes. Like I'd hate to be like a gymnast at Stanford. Why is gymnastics always, that was the example I was thinking of too. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to use that because that's because gymnastics is always the, the example that gets brought up. I guess that there is like a pretty serious following. I mean, there's a serious following to all of these sports, right? But like, I think about, you know, I just made fun of Stanford. So now I'll say some nice things. Like they have an incredible women's basketball program, right? Like they're real. they have a great swimming program. Like there are students who are, I don't want to like use the NCAA. They're going pro in something other than sports, but like their inner, their sort of relationship to collegiate athletics is not the same as a football player or a basketball player or even, you know, a, a baseball player where it is part of this, you know, broader sort of collegiate experience and it has pedagogic value and there's all this stuff. And it's like, you know, they're they're not bringing money in, but it does sort of once again put the lie to the NCAA's whole perspective on this because if it were really about, you know, the spirit of amateurism and the pedagogic value of sport, then like those programs would have the impacts that this will have on them considered much more significantly than they do. But the NCAA doesn't actually care about any of that. So I didn't hear anything you said after Stanford women's basketball, because yeah. I'm still mad about the whole sisters flopping their way past South Carolina in the final <laughs> four a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, like, and, and I don't mean to suggest that like those programs and that those sports don't have their own very dedicated following. And I, I think we've seen that like, when sports are put on TV, people watch them and they can engage with them and like recognize the quality and the skill and expertise that's there. So, you know, there's there's a lot worth celebrating in in college sports that isn't just football. So it's too bad when, you know, the money that that brings in seems to to dictate everything else. But this is like completely far afield. And I guess we could sort of move on after after this. I'm running out of stuff to talk about. But the most <laughs> frustrating thing about this is what is driving the money is all these conference specific tv channel deals which are not bad things in and of themselves i love the sec network Mm -hmm. uh but too often these conferences will just build everything around football say oh we're showing reruns of football instead of women's basketball or softballers you know they're showing this instead of baseball too or you know sometimes even basketball like if you just showed live sports on the SEC, ACC, Big Ten network, I, people will watch that. And it's it's to the detriment of the sports that are already being treated as afterthoughts that they can't even get the airtime and the exposure and the the reach, you know, the recruiting power, frankly, that, that comes with that out of the, you know, these networks that are ostensibly for the entire conference, but are really just about football. It's a cry and shame as, as a fan of, of somewhat more unpopular sports and just someone who likes watching sports on TV. Like, I would... Put indoor volleyball on. Like, if, you, if they put indoor volleyball on, like, SEC Network or ESPN, it would become the most popular sport in America within yeah. 10 years of this, I'm certain. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, all you have to do is put it on TV and give it a little time. And people generally will come around to it because, like, 
sports are great. Watching live sports is great. And, you know, a lot of these athletes, even if they do end up becoming lawyers or, you know, insurance salespeople or whatever, like they're incredible athletes in their prime. So they're going to give you a good show. (laughs) You know, they tend to be pretty impressive, even at smaller programs, it's in smaller conferences. So we advocate for that because you're right. Like how many times do you have to replay like the last bowl game you were in? Like, it seems like you could show other stuff. It'd be just as good. So yeah. Bauman, we should talk about other things. And we've discovered something. We both have great love for a Hall of the Very Good change-up artist. Yours just retired. Mine just uh, was inducted into the Mariners Hall of Fame. And so we want to take a second to talk about Cole Hamels and Felix Hernandez because they make us feel feelings. I guess I'll start with Hamels. Since he just retired, I sort of relived... Uh, he was the most polarizing member of the Phillies when I was first cutting my teeth as a Philly-specific blogger. And so I ended up devoting a lot more, I would say like a lot more time and energy to writing about and like, you know, familiarizing myself with, with him than even like Roy Hall- Halliday and Cliff Lee. And, you know, to a certain extent, maybe like, maybe even more so than like Rollins and Utley. He seemed, he was just such a such a polished pitcher, even from when he was when he first came up in his early 20s. I expected him to have sort of a hang around phase of his career that just never really happened because he you know hurt his shoulder uh, a couple years ago around the pandemic and just wasn't able to come back. And so it's very cool. He's one of the first. I don't want to say the first. I'm old enough that I remember like Rollins and Scott Rowland as prospects, but uh, Hamels is one of the first pitchers who or first Phillies players who I remember like from the draft all the way to to retirement basically who you know where I wasn't even like just a kid like you know I was in in high school when uh when he got drafted and I guess it's like you know makes you consider your own mortality that you've seen the you know the entirety of this guy's career but this was I would say you know one of the formative athletes of of my developing sports fandom and so he was you know, really solid public citizen in a way that not a lot of athletes are uh, in Philadelphia. So, you know, I just want to wish him well in retirement. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a little emotional. I had come to terms, it, I guess Felix sort of had this too, where like the end had happened three years before the end actually was made official. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, a lot of complicated feelings. So, you know, I hope he's, he's happy in retirement. It's striking like how... When you put their careers next to one another, at least from a statistical perspective, how similar they end up being, right? Because, you know, there's, gosh, less than 100 innings of difference between the two of them. Felix's career ERA is a 3-4-2 and Hamill's is a 3-4-3. And, you know, their FIPS are within striking distance of one another. And at least by our version of war, you know, Felix was worth 54 wins in the course of his career and Hamels was worth 51.6. Like they were very tight to one another in terms of their career achievements. And I think, you know, Felix was the same for me where I was like, well, he'll have his prime. You know, he threw so much as a young pitcher. He threw so many innings for just like terrible Mariners teams. And I was like, but he'll, you know, he'll sort of have a, a a slow decline and he'll start to tick up in terms of his career war, even if the 
you know, the back half of it is a little less smooth than the front half and he's not as dominant and he settles into being like a five. And it just, you know, the the drop when it came was like really dramatic. And, you know, some of this was that he had, you know, what would have been sort of new starts pulled out from under him because of the pandemic. You know, he he was sort of done with the Mariners and he tried to catch on with the Braves. And then, you know, that season happened the way that it did. And he opted out because of COVID. And then he tried to catch on with Baltimore, but he didn't make the big league roster out of camp. And so he opted out of his deal with them. And then he was just kind of done. But yeah, I, I said to you, as we were thinking about sort of what these guys mean, like Felix is one of those players, and I'm sure we could come up with others, where the particular way that he threw his changeup and like what that pitch looked like kind of r- ruined me for other changeups where I was like, well, it doesn't look like his. So like that, like, what is that? Did that not like finish the way they meant it to? And, you know, that's not a reasonable thing to think, but that was sort of my experience of him where I was like, this is the platonic ideal of a changeup to my mind. And if it doesn't look like Felix is like, it must be a garbage pitch, which is not the way the changeups work. <laughs> but that was the way I felt about it. I was like, he's our, he's our guy. And that pitch when it was working was so beautiful. And now every other one seems less good to me, even though I'm sure many of them are as good or better. Yeah. And Hamels was probably the first pitch. I guess he was, he came up around, no, he came up a little after uh, Brandon Webb. Like the Brandon Webb sinker is the the pitch that I keep going on. But like, obviously growing up on the other side of the country, you know, not having access to Diamondbacks games regularly. I didn't see him pitch all that much. Uh, But like, you know, Hamels, I watched basically his entire career. And the changeup, like the thing about him was he wasn't spectacular. He like, there was nothing really in your face about it. And he was just so steady and so reliable. And it's different for him because I think he, and I wrote about this when I wrote about it or when, you know, when I did his career a bit, he sort of got ruined by Cliff Lee in the, in the minds of, of a lot of Phillies fans. Cause Lee was just so unflappable and Hamels was not like he was excitable. He was human. He got emotional. Like he, you know, had his ups and downs. We saw him struggle in a way that we never saw, or at least Phillies fans never saw Lee struggle. And like Lee and Roy Halladay sort of broke the curve. And I think they had a huge positive impact on Hamels as a pitcher. But by the time that happened, they had just completely ruined everybody's expectations. And I think that to a certain extent, Hamels has ruined people's expectations about Aaron Nola, who's not a very popular athlete here, despite being like maybe the best Phillies player of the, uh, you know, sort of the post dynasty era. And the, the athlete who ruins other athletes for you is a, I don't know. That's sort of, hand and glove with something we're going to talk about in a little bit but i don't know i just like i always connected with hamels because he struggled because like it felt like you needed to stick up for him in a way that you didn't with with chase utley for instance you know someone who like you know i I felt like i could see something in him that that not everybody could and you know i sort of i made this sort of my mission when i was like you know 22 and writing on a wordpress wordpress blog to like try to make people understand how good this guy actually is, even though he's not like in your face about it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a complete, you say they're similar. I think that the big differences are that 
the knock against Hamels was that he was never like the best pitcher in baseball. I think Felix was at least in that conversation. I mean, he won the Cy Young. So like, you know, that, that elevates you. So Hamels sort of had the Halliday career in miniature where he had like a decade long career with his original team and then got traded to the Rangers and became, you know, really important player for, for those teams as well. And so, you know, he sort of had that second act in a way that Felix never did. But I almost wonder if there's something like, I'm sure you would want Felix to have had that hang around phase, like if he had pitched 10 years in Atlanta or Baltimore and and gotten up to 70 war and gone to the Hall of Fame, I'm sure you would have been happier than the way it is. But like there's something I think something romantic and tragic about him being a one ending ending up being a one club man. You know, yeah. that it's it feels very characteristically Seattle. Yeah. For a team that, that hasn't had I consider being mean about this. I'm going to try to be you kind. Can be, was, you can be a little bit. You can be a little bit mean about it. It's okay, fine because I'll be I'll be mushy about Felix on the back end to like soften the blow for Mariners fans. How about that? So a big part of, of the the Hamels narrative is that like he was an NC like he dragged that team to the World Series in in 2008 and was really good in the playoffs in 2010 and 2011 as well. And Felix never got that chance. And well, what I was going to say is for a team that hasn't been that successful, Seattle has had just one after another of really charismatic, really special, unusual superstar players. You know, you go from Edgar Martinez to Griffey to Ichiro to, you know, to A-Rod and, and, and Felix. And, you know, you could say Julio Rodriguez is is like this. I'm, you know, I'm sure you'd rather him be like the avatar of a team that makes you know wins three pennants or whatever but he's the answer right now he's the equivalent on the current mariners roster you know what his big league career ends up looking like and toto i hope is different than felix's for a lot of reasons but yeah i mean he's definitely the avatar for that right now even when the team is bad like there's always a somebody like that to really latch on to yeah i mean i think that i would have rather he have the option to pitch again pitch for another 10 years, have a postseason run, have a postseason forget start inning. You know, it's it's funny to to think about sort of the gaps in Hamels and, and Felix's respective resumes, right? Where you're right. You know, Hamels never won a Cy Young. He was an all-star, I think what, four times, but never won a Cy Young. But he has a ring, you know, he he has pitched extensively in the postseason he has pitched in some very weird postseason games in fact whereas like Felix was you know a Cy Young winner and then a runner-up but doesn't have a single postseason inning to his name and so I would have liked that for him like they came so close so many times and then you know some of the times when they came the closest like he was already starting to be in sort of the twilight of his of his career, but it is a special thing. And I think part of what made him so important to Mariners fans was that there was this stretch where the the club was so bad and it kind of felt like we, you know, and this was a time when I used we like to, to describe my relationship with the team. Like we were a farm team for the Yankees. It felt like every you know, good player ended up getting dealt out of town and then the return wouldn't be good and, like, those guys wouldn't play as well. Not happy about Brett Tomko in his career. <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, what if what if Adam, Adam Jones had just been a Mariner, you know? Like, what if he had just stayed a Mariner? So He would have been a great Mariner. 
I mean, you're taking nothing away from him being an absolutely iconic player with the Orioles, but yeah, I don't want to take anything from that fan base. But um, but it would have been nice if he had just been like a Mariner, you know, forever Mariner. But in the midst of all of that, you know, like even Ichiro leaves, right, and goes to New York. Felix stayed, and he he signed a long, lucrative extension. And I've told this story on the pod before. I definitely. I think told it when he had his final game for Seattle. Like I have a very vivid memory of the day he signed his extension. I was living in New York. I was working in finance and, you know, I had a guy on my team who I otherwise liked, but wanted to murder when he would say this, that like he would always joke about how Felix was just going to be a Yankee. And then he signed his extension, and I remember whipping around, and I didn't come up with this phrasing, but I was like, Felix is ours, and you can't have him. And it felt it felt important that that guy was like, no, this is where I belong. And I think that that will always matter to, to Mariners fans. And, you know, I think the end of his tenure with Seattle, it didn't seem from the outside like the relationship between him and the club was particularly good. And it does feel like that has been mended in the last couple of years. You know, when he threw out the first pitch in their, what ended up being that crazy 18-inning game against Houston in the division round last year, like, the place went nuts. Mm-hmm. You know, they played the song, and he came out of the bullpen, and everyone went crazy. And, you know, the reception he got this year at the All-Star Game was great, and obviously all of the the Hall of Fame stuff that happened this past weekend. So, it's nice that even though it had something of a sour note at the very end, it seems like whatever that was has been at least publicly mended. And now it can just be unequivocally enjoyed. Whereas, like, you know, you walk around T-Mobile and you walk around even their facility down here in Arizona, and you know who you don't see really anywhere is A-Rod. Like, they have every major mariner plastered all over the place this is a team that like in the last couple of years has leaned very heavily into this the nostalgia of 95 and boy do you not see a rod anywhere at all <laughs> just don't see that guy i'm sure i'm sure he's somewhere if only because they have like the the picture of the win from 95 all over the place but in terms of being highlighted as like a mariner uh, they don't they don't really do that very much yeah it's a very it's similar to phillies and kurt Schilling. Like, you see John Crook and Darren Dalton all over the place. You're at least, like, their jerseys and posters and stuff. Yeah, we're just not going to talk about the pitchers. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, then you didn't have to take anything down, right? Um, so, yeah, our our Hall of Very Good change-up guys, mm, we love them. Last thing I want to say about Felix is, you know, I didn't watch a whole, whole lot of him because, like, he, you know, I was a national, very, like, very nationally, very East Coast. But, like, what I... All I remember about him is it's not like, I don't know, I'd have to think to like think about his change up or, or his delivery, but the first image that comes to mind is the sea of yellow t-shirts. Yeah. And like he transcended that team in a way that I like, I really had to think because I don't know that Felix is more beloved in Seattle than like Chase Utley is in Philadelphia, but Utley was part, like remembered as part of a unit. Like you don't remember him without Jimmy Rollins and, and Ryan Howard. And to have somebody who stood that far, like head and shoulders above the team, you know, I think like the only example I could come up with from my own sports fandom is Alan Iverson, where mm, there mm-hmm. was just like 
so little to like about this team except this one like transcendent charismatic special like you know you're never going to see this again as you're watching it uh type of athlete who you know was really so much cooler than the the team was oh yeah so much cooler than the than the team was and like a you know a a homegrown guy they just hadn't had you know it's kind of funny to think about like Felix and Kyle Seeger's career in conversation with one another like when he when Felix was done like the embrace that he and Seeger had was like oh yeah we are the only guys <laughs> to come out of this that like were really very good so i think that he was singular and also was just like one of the only ones they had who were really any good at all and they've had other you know they've had they've had better success lately and certainly on the pitching side but they haven't had a core group of guys who are like have been mariners since basically the jump like really come together until lately uh it had been a it had been a really long time it was like felix and seager and that was it like you know uh, they had all these prospects famously that were gonna be so great carry everybody across the line it just didn't happen for a long time but now all their pitchers are pretty good so i don't know it's weird yeah everything came good in the end 1986 birthdays or now nostalgia cases. That's oh, a yeah. fun look in the mirror. Yeah. Well, I always was comforted by the fact that, you know, Felix is a little bit older than I am, right? Like, I'm a June yeah. birthday. He's an April birthday. So, like, he's done a literally perfect thing. And I have not. But he's older than me. So, like, of course he has, you know. I, that that tracks. That makes sense. Like, he's wiser than I am. <laughs> Uh, boy, you know, you just keep getting older. It only moves in the one direction. Shocking how that goes. Yeah, it doesn't bother me so much as realizing that, like, like I'm, like, uncomfortably older than the players now. And, like, I don't know how to talk to these. We were talking about, um, a couple days ago, about Davis Schneider, who is the first, first major league player from my high school. And it's not even, like... Oh, you know, South Jersey guys, like, you know, I knew people who played against Sean, Sean Doolittle in high school and like, you know, people my brother's age would have played against Trout and Gallon. And now, like, I was talking to my my brother who's 10 years younger than me. And he's like, I knew Davis Schneider's, I went to school with Davis Schneider's older brother. And I was like, man, <gasps> we are so far from the promised land right yeah. now. Yeah, I, um, I don't mean this as a knock on them. I really mean it as a knock on me. Like, I... I don't know what to, to to talk to to young people about like in in particular. And so I feel like I end up sounding like I'm talking to like an elementary school kid like well, did you have a good day at school? And I'm like, what are you into now? Is Yu-Gi-Oh big? Is that Yeah, I'm like I, I don't even know what platforms they're on, right? It's like you're not on Twitter and they're all on TikTok, right? Is there a new thing beyond TikTok? I'm sure there I'm is. That, I'm like I don't care I'm 37. Know. I'm not actually yeah. like that advanced in age, but I feel I feel a real distance, you know. I feel a gap, but maybe that's just because I was at Jordan Schusterman's wedding, and when I met him for the first time, he wasn't legally old enough to drink. Yeah. So contemplating one's own mortality. Speaking of wrecking the aging curve, yeah. Oh yeah, I know. They grew up good though. Well, the final thing that we wanted to talk about are the the players where you you see them in person and you're struck by the. <laughs> the the 
real profound distance between you and them in terms of their their physical prowess. Like the guys who you see and you're like, wow, you're really you're really something. Was that the concept of this uh, segment? We had to reschedule, and so now I lost it. It it, it well, it started as. When I was writing about Fernando Tatis Jr., I was like, this just looking at him, like he looks different than other baseball players. And I was sort of thinking about, I remember thinking about, you know, Otani, obviously. I remember feeling that about Josh Hamilton, too, that like this guy, like this might be the most talented baseball player I've ever seen. Buster Posey, I think, is a little, you have to like sort of know what you're looking for. He doesn't jump off the field the, the same way. But, you know, just remembering some exceptional guys was the, the concept, but then I brought up the first time I I met Tatis in person was before his rookie year, and I interviewed him and I was like, "This is a child's face," and then he stood up, and I was like, "This is, this is a, n- barely a human being," and because you know he was still only like twenty or twenty one at the time, and he was already huge, and I was like, "And he's going to be thirty pounds heavier," you know, by the time he, he right. fills out, and yeah, it's just. And then, you know, this sort of got into, you brought up the first time you saw Aaron Judge up close. Oh, yeah. It's just, um, we have remarked on this pod before about the um, propensity that shorter stature by baseball standards, to be clear, but by baseball standards, players have to kind of fudge their heights. You know, there's a lot of like, I'm six foot, but only in spikes going on. But there, then there are guys where you see them particularly at field level and you're just really struck by the size of them as people. You know, it's it's kind of like when I've been watching more like NBA basketball in the last couple of years than I had for the couple of years prior to that. And you look at like, you're like, oh, Steph Curry's short. And you're like, no, he's not. He's just playing next to someone who's seven, literally seven feet tall. And sometimes you get to field level with a guy and you're like, the hell is this like you're you look like a monster like from you know from from space jam is that a reference that young people get probably because there's a new one i don't think jordan schusterman was alive when space jam came out so that's (sighs) oh god um but yeah there are guys where you you know you marvel at them in a way you don't want it to to sound or or be like prurient Although there is a long tradition of that in in baseball where your uh, guys can sound a little horny for other guys. Um, but, like, sometimes you are just struck by We talked by the, about Lance Lynn earlier in this podcast. Right? They, know, they, they know what's going on. But it's like um, where you can, you can have the experience of them where being in proximity helps you to appreciate the sort of physical athleticism. And then I think there's this other category of guy where, and the physical athleticism certainly can help facilitate this, but where the tools play louder in person than they're able to even on TV. And like to, you know, to cite a recent example for me, it's like, I don't think anyone is going to be shocked when I say, did you know that Corbin Carroll is fast? But when you're at a game and you see Corbin Carroll be fast it translates in a way that it just doesn't when you're watching, you know, a somewhat zoomed in angle of him on a broadcast. When you can like see that guy fly, you're like, that is what like 80 speed looks like. It reads differently when you're in person and able to see it play that way. And I've, I, I really uh, love those because it, it's, 
you know, it, I think it makes the case for going to the ballpark in person, really, because there are ones where it really jumps out at you when you're sitting there. The things that really stand out to me, it's it's different for pitchers. I will say when I was down there for spring training, I tagged along with Eric because uh, Jacob deGrom and Nathan Eovaldi were and uh, Kumar Rocker were all thrown on backfields for the Rangers at the same time. So, you know, I went with him when I ordinarily wouldn't have. And you could tell, like, the difference between those guys and single-A guys that they were throwing to is it's just incredible. And turns out we were some of the last people to watch Jacob deGrom and Kumar Rocker throw a pitch. So too bad about that. But what I was going to say, the two things that stand out are power and center field defense that like anything, basically anything where you need a sense of scale and distance. I remember being at a college tournament at Minute Maid and Luke and Baker, who is, is he still with the Cardinals? I think so. He was a two way guy at TCU. He was a freshman and he hit one. The, the roof was open at Minute Maid and he hit one out by like 50 feet, like, you know, landed on Crawford, Crawford Street, like for all I know, broke a window across the street. It's one of the longest home runs I've ever seen. And you don't really get that because everything, it just looks like, particularly in a dome, it just looks like it's taking place in this little chocolate box. And I remember around the same time seeing there was uh, the Astros hosted, like, I think it was the Reds and Red Sox back to back. So I was watching uh, Billy Hamilton and Jackie Bradley Jr. play center field in the at the you know same time in the course of a week, and just the amount of ground those guys cover is just unfathomable. Even if you're only like even if you're watching on TV, even if like they show you the entire thing, you don't realize like how far these guys have to run and how clearly they have to see the ball off the bat. I think like spectacular center field defense is the biggest value add in terms of watching baseball in person from an entertainment perspective. I agree, and I have something more to say about that, but first I would like to say not only is Luke and Baker still with the Cardinals, but he is on the big league roster as we speak. Like How did he get called up? I missed that. Yeah, he got called up in June, and then it looks like got sent down, but he is back up with the with the team. He he played yesterday. He is DHing. Well, yeah. I added myself as not watching the Cardinals a whole lot. Yeah, um, well, they haven't given people much reason to watch them lately. But yes, I agree with you about center field defense, and it makes me wish. I mean, the first the first camera angle I wish we could standardize and indeed mandate is like a better and perfect center field camera angle for every broadcast because the variability there is wild. And it is, I think, one of the things that impacts the viewing experience most that people don't notice until they're like, oh, a good one. That's better and different. Why aren't they yeah. all like that? You know who has a really good center field camera angle? I'm going down another cul-de-sac or is uh, Bradenton. Because I, you know, I was watching Paul Skeens make his uh, debut with Bradenton, and I was like, your camera angle is fantastic. Thank you. Anyway, I think that everyone should have to have the good, perfect center field camera angle. But second than that, secondary to that, I wish that there was a feed that you could pivot to that would be like the baseball equivalent of the All-22. Mm-hmm. Because you're right. When you have like... A, a, an angle and can appreciate the distance and, you know, can really see what the routes that these guys are running look like, it changes your perception and really makes you appreciate the quality of the defense. Like our, my, my dad uh, and I, 
we technically still have them, but I don't sit in those seats anymore because I live in Arizona. But like we had Seahawks season tickets and we were way up in the nosebleeds because the, the wait is long and those tickets are expensive. And we initially hated that because you have to like climb a mountain to get to your seats. But when Earl Thomas was still a Seahawk and still really good, it was great because you really could just be like, wow, he started there and he got there and it happened so fast. And I think that, you know, I think that uh, center field defense and safety play, it's the same thing. You want to be able to yeah. see up or at least in person. I think it makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my favorite place to to sit in the stands at a major league game is like one of the upper levels behind home plate. Cause yeah, I mean, you can see everything unless everything. you're like, you know, unless you're in the, the corporate robber baron seats, like you're not going to be close enough to like really get a whole lot yeah. of detail. Um, yeah. you know, I work for a living, so I can't afford, you know, the, right. I think it's, it's nice that those seats are bad a lot of the time though. Like it feels like a small bit of justice. Are there any other guys who you've seen in person where you're like, wow, this is a different thing, getting to see you in person versus on the broadcast? Does anyone else jump out of you? This is like a very haphazard way of remembering guys. But You and I had are. different reactions to seeing Aaron Judge in person for the first time because my first exposure to him was, in, was his rookie year, and the team that I was spending – all my time around was the Astros, which was a very short team at the time. You know, Altuve, Bregman, even the pitchers like Keuchel, Lance McCullers, not big guys. And so the Yankees came to town and I went to the visiting clubhouse and Judge didn't stand out because they were all that big. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so like this was like Judge was like a Rollis Chapman would be the biggest person in most rooms. And he was complete like he was normal size. Like who they have? They had Jordan Montgomery who's huge. Dylan Batances, who's like basically as big as Judge. So like Stanton, like Judge, like, yeah, OK, like this is six foot seven, 280. But like it, it, it's not as as impressive when like everybody is six six two forty. I remember thinking was was Lindsay on the on the Yankees beat at that time? Maybe, maybe later. So I like, don't remember now? I'm smaller than most major league baseball players, but bigger than many. Like I don't have to worry about getting stepped on. And you know, just imagine like, what if you're like you know five four and you have to make your way through? And the other thing is like the Yankees they travel with like just a stupid amount of media and there were all the Japanese media were in town too. Cause Masahiro Tanaka was, was still on the team and like just outrageous. It, it's the most claustrophobic I've ever been in a behind the scenes area of a, of a major league ballpark. But like the, they're all that big is, I don't know. That's, that's a, a memory that I'm, I'm not going to forget anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, it is a startling thing and I, I wish that every, you know, like that every guy on Twitter who's like, I could do this thing that big leaguers do would have the opportunity to sort of appreciate the the scale and physicality of these guys because it's like, no, you couldn't. And there's a lot of different forms of athleticism on display, right? I think that's the other thing that's cool is that you're not – it's not like everybody looks like Judge. So it is very neat to get to see the sort of different – sorts of folks uh, who are who are doing baseball in a really, you know, professional and, and good way. But when you are standing next to the Giants, you're like, wow. I mean, not the literal Giants. Yeah. Some of them well, are some big, of them, but, you know, Madison yeah. Bumgarner. Just, yeah. Well, I guess he's, he hasn't been a Giant in a long time. But, yeah. you know, I, we, I think we'll all be happier if we forget everything that happened after that. Um, <sighs> you Darvish, 
underrated, yeah. just yeah. monster human being in person. Yeah, big guy. And and Otani in person, you're like, wow, you're 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 a big strapping dude. So anyway, this has been us appreciating the athleticism of big leaders. I mean, it's and not even. It started as athleticism, and I just saw just like listing like, big guys, huge guys. You're, yeah, yeah. I feel like we're in um like a skyscraper era of of baseball and the the young guys are sort of continuing the tradition right i mean like we have we have Ellie de la cruz and i know he's still kind of not available right now but like an o'neill cruz and even even like really tall but but like more spindly guys like you know like your perez where you're like you're huge skyscraper I mean, we need a better the, the size they tolerate in up the middle guys is right? like i mean the you know o'neill cruz Ellie de la cruz like the fact that Carlos Correa is still playing shortstop, Brandon Marsh is like not just tall, he's he's wide and he's like a very good defensive center fielder. Like it, that just makes me I don't know, I think back to this sort of goes back to the the Felix and Cole Hamels thing. Like they pitched in a in a completely different era of baseball where you viewed 200 innings a year as like the the ante for being a starting pitcher and if you could pitch those innings well then you got to be you know make all-star teams and, and so forth and now just the level of athletic explosiveness yeah that's changed just in the past 10 to 15 years is mind-blowing yeah. to me yeah it's pretty incredible it's it's pretty amazing and you know how long will carlos Cruz stay as shortstop i mean we could wonder about that but the fact that teams are not only willing but but eager to try to keep these guys up the middle when they're giant is is pretty cool because you know you used to be shorter you used to be smaller now they're all i mean like Corey seager's huge he's still playing short again for how long who knows but bauman do you have anything else that you want to get off your chest while other ben is away and unable to stop you i consider busting out a college baseball player or but other bed not being here, my heart really wasn't in it. Right, yeah. Like you gotta you gotta wait until you can spring it on him in person. I mean, you let you let me talk about Lance Lynn, college baseball, and Cole Hamels. I feel like like I, I mentioned this when we were talking about topics, but like I feel like the guy from the worst first date ever. That we're just talking <laughs> about all my interests. All of the things. I mean, we want people to enjoy their time on on this effectively wild uh i think uh, we want people to lean into their to their passions um and all of those things are relevant and relatively newsy so i think we i think we did okay i am going to ask that you stick around while i bring our listeners the future blast which is brought to you as always by rick wilbur rick is an award-winning writer editor and college professor and has been described as the dean of science fiction baseball and in this future blast brought to you from 2047 i'm here to say with an uneasy peace holding in the taiwan strait and russia back at the negotiating table in europe baseball in 2047 returned to something akin to normal early on right-handed pitcher danny skeens fresh up from a solid season at the reborn triple a sacramento salons took advantage of an injury riddled texas rangers pitching staff to get the start on opening day and threw a splendid three-hitter for the win. Skeens, whose uncle Paul Skeens had an excellent career for Pir for the Pirates and the Padres back in the 2020s and 30s, went on to win six straight before losing a game to the Nashville Rays, giving up four home runs in an 8-3 loss. He bounced right back, though, to win 21 games with an ERA of 2 
0.26 and a whip of 0737 before the Rangers bowed out early in the postseason. The other pitcher who shined in 2047 was Kenton McLeod, who threw an April no-hitter that would have been perfection had he not walked two, and then went on to win 21 games for the Guardians to make to take them into the postseason, where they met the powerhouse Yomuri Giants, who are back with a full roster with peace in the Pacific, meaning their soldier players were back in baseball uniforms. The Giants went on to win it all. It was a good year for the game, but at season's end, there was rumblings of yet another scandal, with a number of players and coaches involved in Be There technology that was outside of the game, but invoked MLB's new league-wide morals clause. Dun-dun-dun. The future's, like, really weird. I don't know if you got that from our future. The present's pretty weird too. Yeah, it's having its. it's We're all hard to shock at this point. I guess that that's true. Bauman, do you have anything that you would like to plug or promote? You work for Fangraphs, so I think people probably know what you're writing. But uh, what what else you got going? Uh, I mentioned the the Ringer F1 show. I was back on that today. Uh, You can hear hot wheelie sports takes. That's basically uh, you know all I'm doing is is work. We're gonna have some, hopefully have some good stuff on Fangraphs in the next week. The, the Phillies are hosting some interesting teams, so hopefully I'll be able to. Yeah, to, you know, maybe maybe seeing Otani pitch in person. So, Ooh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see him pitch in person. I've seen I it before. Just it's recommend. been. It might have been like since his rookie year. So this is like a completely wow. Otani. Yeah, I mean, they, I don't know. I left the AL West. Now I yeah. don't. Don't see him as often as I'd like to. Yeah, although the balanced schedule is is hopefully going to help you out there a little bit in the years to and come. So will and him then, signing with the Mets? So. I was just about to say, and who knows how often you might see him come come next season. Well, uh, Bauman, I appreciate you filling in for Ben. I'm sorry that I called you Ben twice. So say I appreciate um, you eventually remembering my first name. So thanks very much. That'll do it for today. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Michael Bauman for joining me. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up to help keep the podcast humming along and ad-free. Matthew Royer, Brian Hines, Marco Monaco, Ben Roth, and Amy Mantis. Thanks so much. Your Patreon membership comes with a variety of perks, including monthly bonus episodes, access to the Effectively Wild Discord group and our playoff streams, as well as discounts on merchandise and complimentary Fangraphs memberships. You might even get to come on an episode with me and Ben. It all depends on your level of support, but rest assured that any level of support is greatly appreciated. You can check out all the perks and offerings on Patreon.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Ben coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. And if you're musically inclined, we're still taking theme songs, so send those along to us too. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his production and editing assistance. I'll be back with another episode later this week. Until then, be well and enjoy baseball. Does baseball look the same to you as it does to me? When we look at baseball, how much do we see? Well, the curveballs bend and the home runs fly. There's more to the game than meets the eye. To get the stats compiled and the stories filed, fans on the internet might get riled, but we can break it down on Effectively Wild. 